0: But on the other side of the Red Sea, Israel fears the Lord. They have true biblical fear because sometimes we hear fear the Lord. What what does that really mean? Well, it denotes a sense of reverence and awe a person might feel in the presence of greatness. And Israel is in the presence of greatness. And what we'll see is that our God, the God of Israel, is the God who delivered Israel from Pharaoh. And the deliverance and the rescue that God provided for Israel as they are fleeing Egypt then becomes one of the most epic and foundational themes for the rest of Scripture's story of salvation. Ultimately, we will see how, salvation, how the salvation that God works for Israel ultimately points us to Christ Jesus as, who works our salvation out for us. So for those of you who haven't been with us through this whole uh, series, I want to help us um, uh, get to where we are because we truly are, at this point, we're at the very climax of the story of Exodus. Uh, Exodus is is a historical narrative book about the history of Israel and specifically about how God liberates Israel out of Egypt's grip. And so that story starts at a certain place, There's a a conflict that rises, and then there's a climax, and then there's a new place where Israel will be in the end. We'll get there. There's There's a lot of chapters to go before we get to that end, but we are there right at the climax of the story. So Exodus began with Israel being faithful to God's command from Genesis chapter 1. They have been fruitful, and they have multiplied. Their number was so great that an unnamed Pharaoh turned against them out of fear. This Pharaoh made an attempt to actually destroy Israel with harsh enslavement, with even harsher working conditions. And then he threatened death by drowning the newborn male children in the Nile River. Pharaoh had set himself at complete odds with God as he oppressed the children of God. And now, Pharaoh is in a battle royale, a UFC championship fight with God where chaos has been unleashed from heaven. God has reversed all aspects of nature, defeating the gods of Egypt. And then ten plagues later, culminating in the death of the Egyptian firstborn, Egypt, as one commentator put it, is now in primordial chaos darkness, and death. Pharaoh, though, still has a hard heart towards the people of God and God Himself. Pharaoh would rather crush Israel with his army than let them go worship and serve the Lord. And now here we are. Israel has packed up in haste after the Passover and they are making their three-day journey into the wilderness. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to open it up. If you're using one of the pew Bibles around you, you can find the Exodus chapter 14 where this climactic story is recorded for us on page 56 in the Bibles around you. So let us read Exodus 14. I'm going to read and you follow along. I'm going to read the entire chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn and encamp in front of Pihahirath, Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people, say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. All his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what, have, what is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and all the army, and overtook them. Encamped at the sea by Pi HaHiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of God cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is it, is this not what we said to you in the Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to, move, to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee for before is from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that they may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord God used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Oh, Father God, give us ears to hear this word and may we see it applied to our lives today. Give me strength, God, in Christ's name. Amen. So God clearly and unequivocally delivers Israel from her enemy with astounding power. Moses has revealed to us that God is a truly awesome and worthy to be rightly feared and to be trusted. The God of Israel saves. Do you, do you hear that this morning? The God of Israel saves. He has control over all the nature and over all the hearts of men. Notice how the text tells us that we've been hearing about how God held Pharaoh's hand in his heart, his heart in his hand. But now it's all of the Egyptians' hearts that God turns against Israel. He he then dries the ground for his people to pass through safely. He commands the winds and the waves to crash upon the Egyptians. All to demonstrate that He is liberating, He is a liberating and merciful God who saves His people. God delivered Israel from her enemy. So, the main point of our time together this morning is that God delivers all of His people from their enemies. You, if you trust in the Lord, you have been delivered from your enemy. And I want to to point out four ways in which God provides salvation for His people from their enemies this morning. We're first going to see that God provides a plan. And then God provides actually a leader. It's not oftentimes that the people of the Bible are those whom we should look up to and model our lives after, but Moses is a shining star in this story. We'll see how. And then God provides salvation for His people. And we're going to see how all of this culminates in Christ Jesus. So God provides a plan in verses 1 to 9. So Israel is on their way out of Egypt. Okay, They've plundered Egypt, and they're in their their journey to the wilderness. And as they're making their way to Mount Sinai, God tells them, you're going, the wrong, you're going the wrong way to change direction and come back this way. They, they've got to change course so that the Egyptians would believe that they were hopelessly wandering around in the, in the wilderness. And it will look as though they are astray, disoriented, and confused. Then they would make the decision, to, then Israel or Egypt would make the decision Upon Israel's decision to turn and follow the instruction of the Lord, Egypt would pursue Israel in order to defeat them and bring their women and children back into slavery. However, this strategy was to mislead the Egyptians not to their victory over Egypt, over Israel, but to their utter destruction, culminating in the absolute defeat of Pharaoh in Egypt. This plan will liberate Israel from their oppression. Note in verse 4 that God's ultimate plan, what does He say in, in Exodus 14.4? Four, he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. Note that throughout the text, I don't know if you heard this repeated over and over again in Exodus 14, the text repeats Pharaoh's glory of his army, his horsemen and his chariots. It's actually mentioned 7 times. So this is, you know, 7 is a number of completeness. This is the full glory of Pharaoh waging war against the full glory of God. God is pitting the glory due his name against the glory of Pharaoh. And as has always been the case with the glories of kings and governments of the earth, Glory is found in their accumulation of both wealth and power. And at this time in world history, Egypt was one of the most powerful and wealthy nations. They were glorious, so glorious that, he, that, that Pharaoh had a massive army, thousands of horsemen and over 600 chariots. He has 600 choice chariots, but he has more chariots in his power under his reign his power and wealth were actually something to behold. And I'm sure if any of us were standing with that group of Israelites on the seashore in the wilderness, we would be fearful of the glory of Pharaoh as well. And now all of the power of Egypt was directed in a vengeful force against Israel as they walk out defiantly. You saw that that they were walking out, that's the way of like a raised hand, as though they're celebrating. And it seems as though Israel may be guilty, though, of a premature victory celebration, a little too close to Pharaoh's watching eye. Because Pharaoh then decides to give an order to send all of his hosts, he sends all of his glory into the wilderness to crush Israel. So as ignorant as Israel is of those who are in hot pursuit of them, Pharaoh is absolutely ignorant of God's plan to receive glory by putting all of Pharaoh's glory at the bottom of the Red Sea. So God has a plan to utterly defeat Pharaoh and receive glory, honor, and praise as he displays his power over the enemy of his people. But as God provides a plan, He also provides a leader. In verses 18, 10-18, uh, to 18, So this leader of God's people is taking them into the wilderness, being the mouthpiece of God to His people, but Israel turns on Moses. And we get a picture of just how fickle Israel can be. They cannot see God's ultimate plan. They are overly concerned with the glory of Pharaoh. They believe they've actually been set up You've entrapped us. What are you doing, Moses? The only thing that they can see is that they've been trapped with nowhere to go and no way out. In camp near Migdal, he said. In camp south, down near the Red Sea, he said. Change course and direction. And now you've led us right into the viper's mouth. But Israel doesn't even stop there with getting lippy with Moses. They keep crying out. The Lord via Moses, they they cry out to the Lord via Moses that they would rather be back in Egypt. They get a big case of the I told you so's accusing Moses and God of planning their destruction rather than liberating them from Egypt. And to top it all off, they say, that they would rather be back serving Egypt rather than on their way to serving God. How quickly they bemoan their circumstances. And I don't know about you, but I know that I oftentimes identify with the Israelites here. I don't know if y'all heard me there. Because I I think some of you are more like sitting over the Israelites in judgment right now. Like how in the world did these crazy, how in the world do you crazy people keep on sinning against the Lord? All right. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. But oftentimes, often when I read stories about Egypt, I mean, about Israel, I do not have the eyes to see what God is doing around me when I think about myself and how the text applies to me. And when I look up in my own circumstances, I can't see what God is doing. I grumble. I'm given over to complaining about my circumstances when I can't see how in the world God is going to get glory out of this situation. Anybody ever ask that question? Yeah. How in the world is God going to get glory out of my circumstances right now? But I do want to say that what you, we must be careful not to be so high and mighty looking down our noses at the Israelites. Here, note this. Note this, that they do cry out to the Lord. They do cry out to the Lord. They are not so blinded and so prideful and hard-hearted themselves that they either neglect or ignore God they turn to the only one who can save them. Our pridefulness and our quick judgmental spirits can be so harsh to Israel as we read this story, but we often respond far worse than Israel does, don't we? We are so quick in making the situation all about us, thinking that it'll all be okay if this one little thing happens. If this one little thing changes, I can really be strong enough to make it through. Or we resound with prayerlessness rather than crying out to God. Or our overly critical and judgmental spirits, we seek to approve the cries of those who cast themselves upon the Lord, no matter the pattern of their words they use or the types of vocabulary they cry out to God with. You see, we have far more in common with these fickle Israelites than we want to admit. And we have far more to repent of than we let on. We often have such a lofty vision of ourselves that we forget that we too are sinners whose only hope in life and death and the circumstances of our life is God and God alone. He is the only one that can save us. He is the only one that can fight for us. He is the only one who can defeat your enemies. Our God is not looking for the right prayers or the strength that we can muster up on our own. Our God works with broken and contrite hearts who even in desperation with desperate words cry out to Him for help. So this is not a get your act together Israel or get your act together pillar church and pray right. Cry out to God. Cry out to Him for help. And as quickly as Israel pops off at the mouth at Moses, God gives Moses the words and the motivation that the people need as they await the saving power of God. This is how Moses is a great example to us here. They don't need a spirit of complaining and grumbling. They don't need to be fearful of the army of, Israel, of, of Pharaoh. They, no, they need to do exactly what Moses says in 13 and 14. Look with me there. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you in 14. You have to only to be silent. For God doesn't give His people a spirit of fear. For He is no puny or weak God. He is a mighty God who rescues His people with a mighty strong right arm. Have no fear, people. Israel has no reason to fear. God is for them. Pharaoh doesn't stand a chance. Stand firm, Israel. And although they defiantly left Egypt raising their hands in a a sign of triumph, there's no need to stand there now with knocking knees as Pharaoh's army advances upon them. They have God present with them. God is absolutely in control over all of nature and he is the one who will fight Israel's battle. Be still, Israel, or in our text today, be silent. Israel is there, Israel. There's nothing you can do. Now do you believe that today? There's nothing you can do. God alone will act to defeat Israel's oppressive army or enemy. God will be the glorious and victorious one. These words of exhortation from Moses and from the Lord lead Israel and embolden them to trust and act upon what God is promising to them. He's promising them victory. He's telling them that He will conquer and fight for them. They must accompany their praying with action. Because if they don't move forward into what God is calling them into and in the way that God is making for them that we will see in a moment, they will perish just like the Egyptians. You know, one thing we do as Christians today, and, and, and brothers and sisters, I hear this so often, is that we often do cry out to God in prayer. And I'm grateful for that. Pray. Cry out to Him. Cry. We do this when we're struggling with certain situations in our life and sins that often beset us. We're contemplating sinning because the temptation seems to overtake us again and again. But then... All we really do when I ask you at times about your lives, is I find out all you're really doing is praying. That's what I do sometimes. I'll be honest. Like sometimes all I do is pray. We fail, though, to act by removing ourselves from the sin that wants to destroy us. What does God do? What does God say to Israel here? Stop praying and get to moving. This is not the time to have a prayer meeting. This is the time to walk across the path of dry land. Prayer then is not a magical thing that will all of a sudden give us the immediate abilities to overcome our sins. Prayer is not a magical rote thing that we just say and just wait to see what God's going to do. You have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to act as well as pray. So, if you find yourself in a situation to be tempted to be intimate with someone who is not your husband or not your wife, run away. Flee. Leave all your... I mean, if you got to leave naked, leave naked. Like, flee from sin. If you find yourself scrolling on your phone late into the night, or maybe even during the service right now, but if you find yourself scrolling on your phone, put it in another room at night. Don't go to bed with your phone. Like, you have to act. You have to take a step. Like, you're praying, God, please, please rescue me from my phone. Oh, God, I just, please, like, please, rescue Put your phone away. Turn the game console off. Unplug the internet. And if you continue to battle the same sin over and over again, but you keep putting yourself in the same circumstances that lead you to that sin, you're going to sin. Okay? You're not strong enough in and of yourself to win the battle. You must change your environment. Spend time with people and in places that are not going to lure you into temptation and sin that lead to death and destruction. God has given you elders who love you and pray for you and preach God's Word to you. He's given you godly people in your life, around you, to not only join you in prayer, but help you see and move to the way of escape. What does Paul write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? God is faithful. He will not lead you into temptation beyond your ability. But, you will, but, but when the temptation comes, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you're going to find yourself in the midst of a lot of temptation. And many times what I hear from people who are in, t- in temptation, they know, they heard the Lord provide the way of escape, and they went headlong into their sin. That's why we need godly people around us. That's why we need godly leaders helping us not only pray, but act, removing ourselves from our sin. And our, well, conquering temptations and not going into sin. And Moses is the one who God works through to lead His people to their deliverance and salvation on dry, firm ground. There is a way of escape, friends. God has provided a plan. He's given the people a caring and encouraging leader to follow in the midst of their fear. And now God provides a way. Verses 19 to 23, God provides a way. Now the pillar of cloud that had been with them in their leaving of of Egypt was out in front of them but now it moves back behind them and it creates a barrier between the Egyptians and the Israelites what's interesting in verse 20 is that it's nighttime now and the Egyptian the Egyptians are again in utter darkness unable to make any advance upon Israel does that not sound familiar the plague of darkness, they can't even get out of their beds. They can't even talk or ha- anything. It was so dark they could feel it. So dark, like the glory of Pharaoh is stopped in its tracks and can't advance. I, I don't know, I mean, I, we got some military folks in here. Like, If an army can't advance, like they're pretty exposed and potentially in danger of losing ground, losing the battle. And then, what does Moses do in an act of obedience? He raises that, might, that amazing staff that God has used, and a miracle, a true miracle happens. There's no other explanation for it. The sea is parted. And a path of dry ground, wide enough at this point in Israel's history, with, with, we know the count of men, 600,000 men, which equates to about 2 million people, are able to walk from one side of the Red Sea to the other, on dry ground. And they do this in about 10 to 12 hours. Because what you see is we start at night, and then in verse 24, it's in the morning. And, and, and God looks down, and Pharaoh's army is advancing. So that, in, in Jewish timekeeping, that's 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So in about 10 to 12 hours, God provides a path wide enough in the sea to move 2 million people across the Red Sea and save them. And Israel obeys and they walk across the Red Sea. They move into action. Here, God miraculously provides a way of escape for His people from the trap that they thought they were in. You brought us out here to kill us. You brought us out here to put us in the grave, Moses. God, we'd rather be serving in Egypt. No, come serve me and cross the Red Sea. And now Israel walks forward into God's way of salvation in verse 22. And the author of Hebrews actually says, and Doug read this from, for us earlier in a larger portion of the text, but in Hebrews eleven twenty nine, it says that Israel by faith crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They trusted in God's plan of salvation. And there was only one way. It was either go headlong into the army of Pharaoh and die or trust God and cross the Red Sea. God provided a plan. He provided a leader. And now He provides the way just as He had planned to get glory so that Egypt and Israel know without a shadow of a doubt who God truly is. He is the great I Am. He is the Lord strong and mighty. And now God provides Israel their ultimate salvation. God provides salvation in to 31 we're going to jump back a little bit into 23 because I want to point this out because this is how foundational and amazing and climactic this really is. In verse 23, Egypt now makes their advance upon the people of Israel early in the morning. They're able to do so because God has still separated the waters with a strong east wind. And what's interesting about this wind is that it is, in that's mentioned in verse 23, One that spreads the uh, water apart is it's the same word used throughout the Pentateuch for the breath or spirit of God that Moses has already written about. Remember, Genesis 1, verse 2 and verse 9, that it was the breath or the spirit of God that separated the chaotic waters and the dry land. And then... In Genesis 8, 1, after the flood, what happens? The flood that was a watery judgment for the sinfulness of humanity. God breathes over the water and sent the waters to depart so that the land would be exposed. And then, we've already heard this before in Exodus 10 in the plagues of the locust. God uses a strong wind or His spirit or His breath, the Hebrew word ruach, He uses that to blow the locust into the Red Sea, drowning the locust in the Red Sea, which is a foreshadowing of the drowning of all of Egypt in the Red Sea. And now the walls of water that were held apart by God's Spirit lured Egypt into the same patch of dry land that Israel just used to be saved. And since it was early in the morning Egypt, may have even been relying on their god, Ra, the sun god, to strengthen them and defeat and enslave Israel once again. But as the sun rose, Ra was unable to empower or save Egypt from the trap that God set for Pharaoh and all of his glory. God... Throws the glorious and mighty army of Pharaoh into absolute panic. they completely lose their all of their bearing. Is that good that they lose their bearing? No, it's not good to lose your bearing okay in a battle, all right? The walls that were once held back by the powerful breath of God are now beginning to flow under the chariots. The dry ground turns into a bog and the chariots and the horses are unable to advance. The Egyptians then sound the retreat because God has stopped holding back the water. God is in an act of swift and final judgment lets the water down to decimate and drown the the glory of Pharaoh. So that in verse 28, not one, not one remained. The enemy of God has been defeated. The enemy of God's people has been crushed under the waters of judgment. And amazingly, it's through these same waters that Israel just walked through without a speck of mud on their sandals and without a drop of water on their tunics they are completely spared from any form of judgment it, it is though god has fought for them utterly defeated their enemy and rescued them from their fearful dread and their sure death and now they stand on the other side of the of the of the shore fear from shore to shore where god leads them to praise and trust him in verses 30 and 31 And it is so amazing that by the grace and mercy of God, this is not where the story of salvation ends. Really, it's here where the story of God's rescuing, deliverance and crushing defeat of the enemy of God's people really begins. From this point forward, the Red Sea rescue becomes a paradigm for the future salvation that God will provide through Christ Jesus. God has transformed His people in the Red Sea. Something happened. They were fearful of Pharaoh, and now they fear the Lord. God transformed them in the Red Sea, and Isaiah actually picks up this story in Isaiah 43 as the prophet of God's people Isaiah 43.16, and he talks about a new exodus that's coming. Yes, Israel, you have experienced the exodus of God, God's rescuing power from your enemy, but there's a new exodus coming. A new salvation through waters of judgment where every enemy of God's people is dealt a crushing and judgmental blow by the Lord. This promise of a final and complete salvation by judgment of waters, finds echoes all throughout the Scriptures and in the New Testament, in the life of Christ. Recall with me how Jesus started His ministry. Was He not baptized in the River Jordan? Plunged beneath those waters? The same waters that God had parted for Israel to cross over into the promised land? And then what does Jesus say to His disciples in Mark 10.38? Jesus says that He's going to be baptized into death or fully immersed into the full fury of God's cup of wrath. He will be fully immersed in judgment on our behalf. And then at the cross, God's wrath fully engulfs Jesus in the judgment that sinners like you and I deserve. The blood and then blood and water flow mingled down a Roman spear. The true and better Passover lamb has bled and water flows from His side as if He had been drowned under a torrent of water. So Jesus' ministry to us is for us begins and ends with waters of judgment. And in doing so, Christ vanquishes our enemies of sin and death. Our chains are gone. We've been set free. Death has no sting. Satan has been dealt a mortal wound in which we will, it will, will end by him being thrown into a lake of fire. And what is even more significant and more special about this is that as Christians, if we truly trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Christians identify symbolically with Christ in our own baptism. You ask, why do we harp on baptism? It's because I want you to be identified with Christ, one who's been judged on your behalf. Paul writes in Romans 6, 3-4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ and know that when the New Testament uses baptism, it is full immersion into the water and then up out of the water. Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him in, by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Why is your baptism so important and significant? It's because you fully identify with Christ, both Him being judged for you because you're only under the water for a second, and then you're raised to new life because one has been judged on your behalf. Christ has provided new life for you. You're now hidden in Him and you belong to Him. You no longer live in your former ways of life, but now you live a new and transformed life empowered by the Spirit to conquer sin and live holy lives in this present age. You can trust and believe in Christ today as your only hope from sin and death. If you've never been baptized as a follower of Christ, the pastors of this church would love to hear your testimony and walk with you through what it means to be baptized and baptize you. On August the 8th, we're actually going to have the joy of baptizing Brian Zermino, who was recently saved and converted by God and came to Christ and wants to tell you his testimony. Amen. So if you haven't been baptized, August 8th's the day. We're baptizing people. Come see us. We would love to baptize you as well if you've been converted by God and trusted in Christ as your only hope in life and death. And I want you to know that if you've never trusted in God for your salvation today, today can be the, sal- the day of salvation. Because you, like the Israelites, if you've been saved, you were changed from one side of the shore this morning to the other. Please come and talk to our prayer counselors who will be in the back if God is changing you. Or come talk to me. Or maybe talk to a Christian friend sitting around you. We would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and live a new and holy life and be baptized and follow Him the rest of your life as a member of this church. Our God delivers His people from their enemies. He's provided salvation for all who would trust and believe in Him. He is glorious and worthy of all honor, praise, and trust. What a great salvation provided to, by such a great and mighty God. Father, I pray that people in this room right now would trust in Your salvation. You plunged Your Son to death in waters of judgment that we might trust in Him and not be judged. I pray, Father God, that people would repent and believe in Him today. And I pray for those of us who have been baptized that we would understand how wonderful and significant it is that one has been judged on our behalf, that we can live new, liberated lives in Christ Jesus. Praise and glory and honor be unto you. May we trust you with our entire lives, God. In Christ's name, amen.